The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. You are with us for the first time. We are preaching through the book of 1 Peter in the summer. Um, what that means for us is that we uh, pick a book and we just kind of break it up into sections and we work through that over time. So we're doing that through the book through the summer and uh, we are in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at the second half. Of, this, of chapter 2 and First Peter. We're going to be picking up here in verse 11. So here's what I'm going to do for us, like usual. I'm going to read a passage and pray for God's help in looking at this. We're going to pick up here in verse 11, read to the end of the chapter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is that if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He, commit, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he continued but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, as we look at these words, we want to be people who are shepherded by Jesus, who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. I pray that you would help us to enjoy the good life that he invites us into, that others might experience in this world. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, I think one of the great issues that we face in our lives today, just in general in American culture, is a general pervasive sense of feeling alienated. Not feeling like we really know where we belong. Not feeling like there's a lot of people who understand us. Uh, I don't know what your experience was of a high school or junior high, um, or just growing up in general. I, I think that's kind of where we all begin to feel this sense of like, who are my people? Where do I belong? I don't feel like I fit in here. Uh, believe it or not, I used to have hair. Um, and when I had that hair, I would I had it in a mohawk. 
uh, because I was really into the underground punk scene and God judged me for it. And that's why I no longer have any hair. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not kidding about the underground punk scene. I'm just saying that's where I was trying to find the people that I belong to. Where are the people that, I mean, I would go to the, the rattiest places for punk shows and I loved them. I felt alive. These are my people. These are the people that I enjoy. The subversive underground punks who, uh, you know, write terrible music and run around to it. You know, that sort of thing. But we all are trying to figure out who our people are. As I talk to people around the city, even this last week, people are just bewildered by our culture and what's going on. Where do I belong? And that sense of alienation of where do I belong is really um, when you become a Christian, that is a part of what it means to be a Christian, to feel like I don't feel like I belong here. Now, it's not because you wear like a what would Jesus do t-shirt and then everybody looks at you weird, that sort of thing. The reason people feel alienated today or any in general is because we are all trying to find the life that is good for us, a good life, a life that we enjoy, that fits for what we see in the world, what we want in the world, and to do that with other people, right? That's why I would go to the underground punk shows because, you know, this group of rabble rousers was my people. We did that together. We were trying to, I don't know, fight the establishment or whatever. <laughs> but when we were trying to live the good life, we were trying to find people to do it with and go in the same direction. Something that we want to be like. That's what it means to be a Christian, ultimately. is to say, I realize I don't live on God's terms. I want to live on God's terms. And in becoming a Christian, you follow Jesus and recognize this world does not reflect God's design as he intended. It's broken all over the place. It's broken in major, deep ways. It breaks right down the center of my own heart. I'm a part of why this world is broken. And yet, because of Jesus, I want to be a part of what God is doing and how he's renewing the world and how he's making all things do and how he forgives sin. We are, as verse 11 says, sojourners and exiles. We are people that aren't quite home yet. We're called into a good life in Jesus, but the realization of that good life is not fully realized yet. And what this passage ultimately is about is about what does it mean to be people who aren't yet home, who are alienated in a certain sense, and what does it mean to live that life in such a way that others experience it as a good thing, the good life that we experience in Jesus, that they want to be a part of that, and that ultimately it's Jesus that we're aiming at. Because ultimately the good life that we want in Jesus is Jesus himself and not whatever our kind of like moral upgrade system is. We want Jesus. We want to be more like him because ultimately at the end of the day, we, you are all in this room not because I'm an incredibly great speaker. <laughs> You're all in this room because we want to be more like Jesus. We are here for him, to be more like him. So here's what I'm going to say is the main point of this passage, and then we're going to kind of just break it down like normal. The good life in Jesus invites others to experience him, invites others to experience Jesus. So... We want to look at verse 11 and 12, and we're just going to start out by asking or looking at what is this good life? The good life in Jesus is a good life that is appealing. Let's look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. First thing I think that I just want to comment on is that here, Peter, who is the apostle, right? Peter, who saw Jesus not only in his earthly ministry, but saw him glorified and resurrected. Here is Peter, who has all the reason to talk down to us, talking to us as an equal. Beloved, like this is a weird one of those weird terms in the Bible that we don't really use anymore. It's definitely gone out of our language unless you read love poetry and stuff like that. It is like, these are my bros. These are my fam. These are the people that I love. He's talking to us as somebody who is a participant and somebody who's eager for us, who loves us and cares about us. And he says, my friends, the people that I love, there is a war that you are a part of that wages war on the inside of you that Jesus is invested in. Verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people who are not quite home yet, right? Going home, but not there. Going towards God's renewed design of the whole world, not quite there yet. Experiencing some of that on the inside. Healing, forgiveness, restoration. And yet, he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, right? There is a part of you that is being renewed, that soul part of you, and yet there is a part of you, the passions of the flesh, whatever those are, those are the ways in which we demean others with our eyes and lust after other people. We demean other people with our words and to belittle other people. The thoughts that we think that are angry and hurtful towards other people, all of these things, these passions of jealousy, anger, lust, envy, those types of things, those are the passions, the ways in which we get off of God's agenda. They direct us away from God's good design for us. And there is a war on the inside. And he's basically saying, guys, obedience to Jesus, press forward into him, recognizing that you have an internal enemy that you're going to have to continue to fight against and work to push aside on a regular daily basis. The book of Ephesians calls this putting off the old self and putting on Jesus. This is just a part of the regular daily life. But notice, I think it's interesting that we can delve into that more. But I think 12 kind of gives us a context for understanding a little bit of what's the purpose of this, right? This isn't just to like become, you know, a monk or a nun and put away all those earthly passions up on a mountainside again or something. So whatever. That's fine if you want to do that. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they, will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I just want to adjust kind of how this reads a little bit. Because the way this reads is like, glorify God among the Gentiles. So Gentiles is a general term for non-Christians, what he's referring to here. And he's saying, live your life like Jesus in such a way, and it can read like he's saying, so that when people who don't know Jesus see your good deeds, they respond to God and say, God be glorified. But they, it, it can read like, but do they become Christians or not? Can you glorify God as a non-Christian? The purpose of this phrase here, actually, I again, I'm not going to get into a translation battle. Like, that's not my jam. I can read the original a little bit. And I think the way this should be read is, so that those who speak evil against you may be the ones who ultimately glorify God. So what this should read like is, people who demean you, who speak against you, who kind of shrug you off because you're following Jesus, that they may see the conduct of your lives and how you love other people around you and are for the people around you and are invited into 
that life in Jesus so that they then say, I want to get in on whatever it is that's going on with your life with Jesus. Basically, our lives to be lived in such a way that we invite other people into Jesus with the way we love Jesus and the people around us. Which is to say, the very things, we said this last week, I think, the very things that you struggle with are the very things that your neighbors struggle with. And the only real difference between you and your neighbors, whatever your fears, sins, anxieties are, is that you have Jesus doing a reconstruction work on the inside, and he's inviting them to experience the same. It's really Jesus that makes a difference between us and our neighbors, not any sort of moral superiority. Um, this is not quite the same thing, but a few weeks ago we met some of our neighbors in our neighborhood for the first time, and they'd, they'd walked by and they'd seen us kind of playing in the yard. They're like, oh, like that's great. Like We love that you're like, playing with your kids in the front yard, blah, blah, blah. But when we met them like fully for the first time, it was in the context of our house exploding. Um, the fire alarms were going off in our house, and it was because I will not name the child that was involved with this, but this was the second time that one of our children has inadvertently almost literally burned down our house. The microwave flames. I don't want to get into all the details. <laughs> but they were just saying, like, man, like, it's just, and I was, like, coming out, and I was, like, my eyes were burning. Like, have you ever, like, experienced, like, smoke in your house where you're, like, it's one thing to, like, burn, like, something on the kitchen stove, but, like, another thing where you've got, like, this is, like, almost, like, burning the house down fumes where, like, my eyes were, like, burning, and I was, like, hi, my name's Jacob, you know, <laughs> and they were just kind of, like, I was, like, I'm sorry that my children almost burned the house, and, they, and later we were talking, and we were just kind of getting to know each other more, and they were kind of, like, no, actually, like, that was great, like, it just helped me know that you're, like, a real person, <laughs> that you don't have, like, your life all together, like, yes, I know, like, I have my life together in such a way that my children now almost have not once but twice in the last six months burned our house down. I know that that's like a small thing. Like, that's very kind of trivial. But you understand what I mean? Like, the way in which we live our lives with our neighbors is to not hide the ways in which our lives are burning down <laughs> or the ways in which we have smoke going off in the kitchen. It is, in fact, we need to be available to our neighbors, open with our neighbors in such a way where they see they burn their house down too. <laughs> the difference is that we want Jesus to help us fix the problems. I leave that to you to kind of figure out. That's the reason we have small groups, frankly, is so we have our missional communities so that we can talk about whatever the kitchen burning down in your life is with other believers and say, how do I make sure that I'm following Jesus and how do other people get in on this? That's the invitation of, this, of the Christian life. Let's pick up here. So I don't know if that sounds like a good life in you, to you. This good life where yet again our, our, the souls of our lives are burning down with problems, but yet we have Jesus to help us follow him. That sounds like a good life to me. The second thing that we want to look at here in verses 13 to 20 is a good life that is subversive. Now, I realize that that subversive word is a, maybe a, a big word, not a regular word. Subversive is basically to come under something and undermine its power and value. A good life that is subversive. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to get into some of those like controversial passages here, and I'm just going to break them in half. There are basically two parts to this. One relates to the government, and one relates to slaves. Um, or to, to ask, does this sound relevant to you? Um, 
we continue to struggle with, can the government tell us to wear masks or mandates and vaccines and all that stuff? And then how to relate to people who are minorities who've experienced oppression. That sounds very relevant to me. That's what this passage is kind of getting into. So verse 13 to 17, we're going to look at this first part first. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, he should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood or love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Um, I have always found it incredibly fascinating that in a book written primarily by people who are being oppressed by the people, by the governing, governing powers above them, and specifically in the New Testament, where they were not only political, uh, politically oppressed by the Greek and Romans around them, uh, religiously oppressed by the prevailing Jewish uh, culture around them, that at no point do you find the apostles doing a culture warrior critique of the culture around them. Like, they really don't talk smack about the Romans around them at all. I, I mean, I don't know, I know if you know much about the Roman culture. We're going to talk about slaves in a minute. Uh, it was bad. It was not very, like, um, good in the sense of biblical sense of people being helped to flourish and grow and be free and equal and those sort of things. Um, it was oppressive. It was mean. It was dominating. Um, I mean, he uses the term empire, right? It was imperialistic. Like we realize like Star Wars, like the empire strikes back. We all know that the empire and the Star Wars is bad. Like these are people who were seeking to dominate and oppress other people. It was not a good government in that sense. And yet here and in other places, the apostles never go out of their way to do what American evangelicals do of culture warrior attacks against the government. That doesn't mean they didn't have thoughts about it, but they never go out directly. Actually, the only place that you find them doing cultural critique and like critiquing the government is like through the comic book of Revelation at the end. Like they critique the government, but they do it in like all these like crazy pictures of like, I'm going to draw a dragon with seven heads and you're not going to know who that is, but that might be the Roman Empire, wink, wink. But they do it in comic book, the comic book version at the end. Excuse me. Um, I just find it fascinating that here they basically are saying, look, whatever's going on with the government, God works through the government, and you should be in subjection and honor the government around you, even if it is unjust and unkind and not biblical. Verse 16, I think, captures the heart of this. Live as free people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. There is a certain sense, a holy indifference that the Christian is called to, that you are called to about the political system around us. It's not to say that we don't work for the political benefit of others around us, especially in a democracy where we do have somewhat of a voice. But it is to say there is a recognition that this government, regardless of whatever it does policy-wise, one way or the other, is not ultimately the place we're going. It's not ultimately our home. It is not ultimately the place that we'll be realizing the kingdom of God. Why? 
Because the kingdom of God is only realized through Jesus' death, resurrection, power. It is the only way, it seems to me, that God redeems the world around us and renews the world around us is through the death of our human structures and power systems. It is through the death of all the things that we put our hope in that are not God himself. And so here, Jesus is calling us to say, basically, work for the good of the other people around you, honor the emperor, don't speak ill of him, but know that ultimately, freedom and power only come through Jesus himself. Freedom and strength and hope do not come at the power of a sword. They come through the giving up of our rights and claims to life and being subject even to the point of death, just as you find Jesus doing. I find it fascinating, though, that the phrase is not using, live as free people who are free, not using your freedom um, as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honoring everyone. This is to say, who are the people that you do not like? Who are the people that you think are just evil and wicked, straight up? Who are the people that you really wish that weren't your neighbors? Who are the people that you wish weren't in power? Who are the people that you really think are not going to stand up very well at the judgment day before God. The command is to honor them, speak well of them. That's not to say you can't critique people or governments or things like that, but it is to do good for other people. I was talking to a pastor this last week. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit of some feedback here. Um, I was uh, talking to a pastor this last week, and he was very bewildered by the way in which, yet again, the network of churches that he's a part of was uh, discovering that there had been cover-up of abuse and financial impropriety in their their system of churches. There had yet again been another pastor who had been found to have covered, known about abuse in their church and covered it up, who had preferred the fame and prestige of their church's name over the uh, validation and support of victims. Um, who had been using funds for personal gain, those types of things. And he was just expressing to me yet again how this is so bewildering, it's so disorienting, it's so frustrating. Like, why do we keep seeing, if you're paying attention at all to the evangelical world, why do we continue to see stories like this? It is, in fact, as though God cares about what verse 16 says. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil. God will not allow Christians to use their freedom of grace that invites people to experience new life in Jesus and believes the best of other people. He will not allow us to continue to use our freedom in Jesus as a cover-up for evil. I, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with kind of our history as a church, but in our previous denomination, I remember specific conversations in denominational meetings where people who were working for the accountability and uncovering of the truth related to pastors not reporting abuse, not caring about victims. And they were literally using the First Amendment as a reason for why we didn't need to be held accountable for what had happened. They were literally saying, uh, 
well, we've been accused of uh, not of reporting abuse and not handling abuse well and not caring about victims. And their first statements were, First Amendment, we can do whatever we want. And it's like, bro, I got a verse on that. Like, like what is your problem? We must, as Christians, not live in such a way where, here's the thing, the reason those types of things flourish in a Christian environment is because this environment is designed to say, whatever your life has been, Jesus forgives you. And he works to renew, renew you and make you a new version of yourself, a redeemed version of yourself that has hope and healing and strength in us. And we all just do exactly like verse 11 has. We have, we have passions that, that are in us and we have constant need for grace and forgiveness. What can happen is that we look at people who are uh, committing heinous acts of evil and think, well, God's still working in them. So we're going to forgive them and deal with them in the church. We don't need to involve the government. We can just handle it here. Peter is, in fact, saying, even if you do not like the government that is above you, they are a part of God's system of justice to punish evil. When people are abused, when financial impropriety happens, that's a part of why God has government in place, right? They are criminal acts that must be dealt with because they are criminal acts, right? If you, if I cuss you out, you know, like that's not a criminal act. Like, should I have done that? No. But, it's a, but if I do things that are criminal acts, the government should be used to bring accountability. We must live in a way that honors the government around us and does not cover up for sin, whatever it happens. And that's not to say that there's something we need to talk about. I'm saying as a general observation and having been in systems where this has happened, we must take seriously that God wants us to live with a holy indifference to the government around us, and yet a right understanding of their place in helping execute justice. Is that guys tracking? We're cool? Send questions in if you got questions. But verse 18, I want to pick up here in the second half of subversive, a good life of this verse. Verse 18, servants, depending on your translation, this is going to read servants, household slaves, or slaves. Usually English editions do not use the word slaves, although the Greek word is slaves. And kind of depending on how sensitive they are to the cultural differences, they're going to use different words. Slaves, servants, household servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not to, to uh, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, when endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sit, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Um, here's something just to kind of put in your brain when you read the Bible. There is, often in the Bible, acknowledgement of social categories without endorsement of them. So, for example, you're going to find uh, the Bible really does teach that it should marriage should be one man and one woman. However, you will find God using people who have crazy marriage situations all through the Old Testament. David uh, had a lot of wives. Uh, a lot of crazy stuff happens in the Old Testament. God uses those things, but he does not endorse or bless them. That is a difficult category to process through, but it is one that helps us understand the Bible's focus is not 
the Bible's focus is on people who need redemption, people who need grace, people who need help. And the primary focus often is on emphasizing the humanity of somebody rather than all the things that are messed up in their life. So, for example, uh, slavery is messed up. Right? Slavery is an evil and it's wrong. Um, but it's interesting to me how Peter goes about kind of subverting its power in these verses. I, we read these and we don't exactly, because uh, none of us, as far as I'm aware, um, are Roman citizens from the first century uh, Mediterranean world. Um, had we been, we would have recognized that they had these things in, and often in the letters called household codes. And the way a household code went was you address the husband, you address the children, you address the workers, you address the wife, and you tell slaves what to do. That's kind of like how they would order things. And it's interesting to me that Peter and Paul in his letters, they do this, but he's doing it in reverse. At no point in Roman household code ethics were slaves directly addressed. They were property to be dealt with. They were not people to be encouraged, strengthened, spoken to. So here, even in the fact that he is addressing them personally, he is using this structure in the ancient world and undermining it. He's talking directly to these servants' household slaves, and he's talking to them like they are equals with him. You can appreciate that. That's that. Here, you hear these verses differently when you begin to recognize that. Not only that, they're they're never given legal justice. You, like a slave, they could have, you know, like these verses refer to, they could have been physically assaulted. They could have been dealt with in multiple ways. They would never be allowed to take their case to court. And here, the household servant, slave, whatever you want to categorize, they are being afforded a standing in the eternal court of God himself, where justice ultimately matters. They are being afforded justice with God himself, who delves out justice with nobody else to appeal it. They're being afforded ultimate justice and standing before God. And then, You'll notice here, it's a small but significant point. There's being spoken to as believers, people who believe in Jesus. At no point in any of the Roman ethic codes was anybody allowed to have a different religion from the father in the house. Whatever the father believed, wife, children, workers, slaves, everybody else. So if the father's, yo man, I am all about that Zeus life. They were all about that Zeus life, whether they liked it or not. Whatever, the, whatever that was, you know, whether they're Team Thor or whatever. Well, they wouldn't have been Team Thor. But sorry, I'm like ultra jazzed about Thor Love and Thunder next week. <laughs> whatever that religion was, they were all allowed. And yet here, Peter is addressing them and saying, you're a believer in Jesus. Now, here's how to live out that Christian life in such a way where, look, man, don't steal from the money pot and get beat for it, you know? Be falsely accused for being, uh, being a Christian who's done something and suffer that, but don't do bad stuff. Like, if you do bad stuff, man, you get what you deserve. But if you're following Jesus and being allowed to be a Christian in a non-Christian home, what sort of witness do you think that bears out to the people around you? The reason I want to acknowledge these things, and then here's what I want to say. I don't have specifics for how you do this in your life. I'm not going to tell you. What does it look like? Like I can't give you a direct line of like, well, servants and slaves in the old and the ancient Roman context were probably similar to kind of having an employer today. 
No, not even close. You can just walk away from your job. And you can't do that in the ancient context. So I can't tell you what the context or specifics are for what it means to be living out a life that's a good life, but subversive to the context around it. Primarily, because I think God gives us these words here to give us a picture and a story, uh, but then he fills us with the Spirit for what our life today looks like and following him. So I can't tell you what this looks like for you. What I can do is give one other example. Just a, one other example that comes to mind um, of how do we live a life that is personal. I'm going to give a story and I'll give a couple of thoughts after that and we'll move on. You guys, we're tracking? Cool? Okay. I'm not sure it... Uh, apart, how many of you are familiar with apartheid in South Africa? Like, that, yeah, it, it's, we're kind of familiar with it. It got overturned in 1994, so it's kind of like older history, but we forget about important history very quickly. You know names like Nansen Mandela, Desmond Tutu, you know those names. Okay, so apartheid was basically um, the whites in South Africa ruling over uh, the non-whites, so which would have been primarily about 70% of the population of South Africa would have been you know, dark-skinned, uh, black Africans, however you want to phrase that. 10% other ethnicities that lived in South Africa Black Africans, however you want to phrase that, 10% other ethnicities that lived in South Africa, 20% the European whites that had colonized South Africa and were dominating and subjugating the entire rest of the population through their, their, their control of the government. They wrote all the, law, the laws, you have to speak our language, be able to be in government, all those other things. You, only, you can only be a part of this neighborhood, which happens to be the one with water and irrigation and benefits and all that stuff. If you are speak this language and are white, and if you're not, then you get all the leftovers. It was just atrocious. It was a it was a leftover uh, remnant of the colonization of South Africa. Nelson Mandela was one of the leaders involved. I'm not going to give the whole story here, but basically he was in prison for 27 years for his work to overturn apartheid in South Africa. When our when it was overturned in 1984, everybody expected it to be an absolute bloodbath. The majority, which you can hear, 70 70 to 20 percent difference. They were expecting it to be an absolute bloodbath, that once the, the white government was overturned, that they would have been absolutely destroyed. What Nelson Mandela and all of his compatriots recognized is that not only were the, the Africans a part of being victimized, but if you are in a system that oppresses other people, you are, in a certain sense, a victim yourself. So they saw that in these white oppressors, they were actually a part of a system that was victimizing them. They were not only being a part of the way in which other people were dehumanized, the blacks and everybody else in South Africa, the whites themselves were victims of the same system and being dehumanized as well. So the solution, rather than having an all-out bloodbath, Nelson Mandela and these guys, they basically said they had kind of like three main goals, but one of the main goals of kind of like restoration and healing in South Africa was if you were a part of the system that oppressed apartheid the minorities in the country, the majority of it, the blacks, non-whites, come clean and say what you did in public, and you will be absolutely forgiven. That's how they found the solution. That is subversive, because it acknowledges the sin that happened. It acknowledges the ways in which other people have been affected. 
but it also acknowledges the humanity and the oppressors themselves and gives them a way out that is not at the edge of the sword. So the point of these verses is that we're be, we have been people who have been raised from death to life. How can we, in whatever context we find that people are being humanized, oppressed, small, big, how can we be a part of recognizing their humanity and helping them experience verse 16 to be, a, be someone who, be people who live as free people, people who are restored their humanity in Jesus? How can we recognize the humanity that other people have and work towards them being liberated? See, we can't determine exactly what that looks like. The Spirit is going to lead you. We can entrust that God is doing something. All right. We're going to finish out here. You guys 21 and 25. You guys cool? All right. I'm not trying to go super long, but here we are. Verse 21 to 25, not only is a good life in Jesus inviting, it is subversive, but it is ultimately supernatural. It is a good life that is supernatural. Verse 21 25, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continue to entrust himself to him who judges, judges justly. He bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you all were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the, sh- the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, this is actually... The only explicit reference to Saul, to Isaiah 53 in the entire New Testament. Uh, Isaiah 53, I want to read it in a second, is this huge prophecy about what Jesus is going to who, what, what Jesus is going to be like. Jesus is somebody who stands in our place before God for all of our sin. He is the one who walks right into the judgment of God. The fiery heart of God's wrath towards our sin stands in our place and frees us into liberating new life forgiven of all of our sin because he took our place. That is what Isaiah 53 says. And what I, what Peter does is he takes that. He says, Jesus has more than an example, but he's not less than an example. So this life of how he saved us is a part of how we are shaped to be like him. So let me read a little bit of Isaiah 53 for you. So here we have Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have streamed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. First Peter 2, right? Direct quotation. All we like, have, well, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his soul. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before the shearers of silent. So he opened not his mouth. This is what Jesus fulfilled. In standing before God's judgment in our place, he gave us not only salvation, but an example of all. See, here's what, here's what Peter says. He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit, deceit found in his mouth. Right? Have you had people sin against you? Have you had people speak evil? Talk smack about you? Whatever you want to phrase that is. Here, Jesus gives us an excuse. But when he was reviled, he did not revile or return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How many of us have felt, I don't know what it, where it happens for you, but mowing the yard or whatever, mowing the yard, I'm just kind of like, that inner court, I always win that argument. And they totally get it in that internal conversation in my head. I say exactly what I wanted to say. Then they see exactly how wrong they are. And I get exactly what is right. Me being proven right. How many of us have Here, when he was reviled, he did not entertain that inner court. When he suffered, he did not pray, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly, forms our sins on his body. You see, what Jesus does is that he embraces the death of not getting his way, of not getting what's due him not getting what's right. He embraces death in our place so that through death he then has a merciful new life to give us. And this is the supernatural power that we're called to. Right, we're talking about supernatural power and some of you are probably thinking like miracles. Miracles happen. We want people to get healed from cancer and all that stuff. But the true supernatural power is to embrace the death of not getting what we want, of not getting what is right, not getting what's owed us. Walking through that with Jesus and having a merciful, giving life on the other side of that that doesn't hold people to our inner core. says to them, I have in me Jesus Christ who has grace and mercy for you. In whatever context this is, work, family, what is it like to not act like vengeance is mine and will let God work out the details? In fact, to say, God, I want people to know Jesus. And I've been forgiven so much in him. Let me learn to be like you and have a life that's giving and This is Jesus who gives himself for our good, even though we don't deserve it. He didn't have to. Calling us into the good life. Getting what we didn't deserve. Resurrection life. Newness in Him. And being like Him. Learning to be like Him. Over time. To give grace and mercy to other people who frankly don't deserve it. Just like us. This is the good life that Jesus invites us to. That others experience. Father, as we've looked at these words and considered your goodness to us, I pray that we would get a taste of who you are and what you are. In you, knowing Jesus, that we would be reminded of mercy and grace again. That we would be called in this week ahead of us to live a good life that invites others to know Jesus. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, 
proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.